Hello and welcome to Veritalk, podcasting the life of the mind from the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I'm Nick Nardini, and I'm a graduate student in English. And I'm Xiaoxuan Li, a graduate student in Chinese literature. And today we'll be talking with a neurobiologist about a discovery he's made in the neurochemical basis of schizophrenia. And we'll also be discussing the music video for the band Chairlift's song Met Before, a choose-your-own-adventure frolic into the life of a few musically talented PhD students. So until now, there's been a significant gap in our understanding of how schizophrenia works, and specifically of the neural architecture of this pathology. We knew that schizophrenia's symptoms, hallucinations, movement disorders, cognitive impairment, manifest in the frontal areas of the brain, but we also knew that the drugs shown to be most effective in treating schizophrenia work in much lower regions. Our guest today is RPR Saunders, a PhD candidate in neurobiology who believes he has uncovered the neurological circuit linking the two with massive implications for our understanding and treatment of the disorder. RP, welcome to Veritalk. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Arby, I wonder if you could begin by just giving us a sort of overview of schizophrenia. We, I think, most of us have a rough understanding of what this disease is, but most of that is taken from you know movies, movies yeah. right? So, tell us about what exactly this disease is. Sure, I'm happy to. I'm not an expert in schizophrenia research uh, on on this end, so I'll just do the best I can. Hopefully, not too influenced by the movies that I watch. As you mentioned, schizophrenia is. Uh, horribly debilitating disease that affects about one in a hundred people. It's a lot more common than I thought, one in a hundred. Me too. Yeah, and unlike other diseases that have kind of terrorized human population for the last, you know, for the last several thousand years, we really don't understand um, how it works and we don't have a lot of good treatments for the disease. So the kind of kind of modern perspective on the disease is that it's a neurodevelopmental disorder. And we kind of know that anecdotally from friends or family who might be diagnosed with schizophrenia because the onset of the disease is usually in one's late adolescence, 18, 19, 20. And so right when people are kind of becoming their own adults, the disease kind of robs them of that independence. And I think some of that um, brain maturation is, is related. So what exactly are the symptoms of schizophrenia? So there's there's kind of three kind of constellations of symptoms. There's the kind of stereotypical symptoms that we think of, like the hallucinations and the delusions, and those are called positive symptoms. And they're positive because there's stuff normal people don't have, and then they're gained. There's also negative symptoms, which is like depression. Um, and there's cognitive symptoms, which, as the description sounds, is problems with your cognition and your ability to solve kind of complex tasks. So if these are the um, outward symptoms of schizophrenia, what are the neurological bases that cause this disease? Or, or what was understood to be right. the neurological basis before your own research? Mm. Yeah, I mean, our own research is, I, I have to say, is, I mean, it's not conclusive about anything with schizophrenia. It's just very... Um, promising? Pr- yeah, it's promising and it's exciting because it, it is a potential pathway for, for how the drugs work. So there's many theories about what kind of goes wrong in the disease, and you can look at the schizophrenic brain from multiple angles, right? You can study it behaviorally, which is what psychiatrists do, and you can study it uh, biochemically or in a post-mortem brain. Um, You can do kind of what the anatomy Mm. of of the disease looks like. Through kind of a collection of these of these different angles, one of the dominant theories about what causes schizophrenia is too much dopamine. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter important for reward and learning and is kind of ubiquitous uh, throughout the brain. Why was this the prevailing theory about schizophrenia? 
Well, there's a couple lines of evidence which are really interesting, actually, and kind of point to how connecting the dots we are uh, about this disease. So the first is, comes from the drugs themselves. And so the first successful neuroleptics were discovered in the 1950s, and there was kind of a whole suite of them. What exactly is a neuroleptic? A neuroleptic is a drug that reduces the effect of the hallucinations and the delusions. I see. Right? So the neuroleptics were only effective against the positive symptoms of schizophrenia, but they were really effective. And, and I think, you know, psychiatrists think it was like the discovery of these drugs was really one of the biggest breakthroughs of the 20th century for, oh. for psychiatry. And do they work by reducing the amount of dopamine? That's the idea, right? So the phenomenon of the drugs working existed for you know, a couple decades. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was only in the 1950s when they realized all these drugs shared a certain property. Right? And that property was the ability to bind and block activity at a specific dopamine receptor, mm -hmm. uh, the dopamine 2 receptor. And this is one of the kind of foundations of the hypothesis that too much dopamine is really the problem in the disease. And there's other kind of interesting um, evidence that would suggest that dopamine is important. Another piece of evidence is Parkinson's patients who get their Parkinsonism from a lack of dopamine never manifest with schizophrenia. And so if you think about Parkinson's and schizophrenia as opposite ends of mm -hmm. a dopamine spectrum, mm -hmm. it kind of makes sense if that could be one of the causal problems. But you never find the two coincident. Exactly. Right. And if you give someone who's suffering from schizophrenia L-DOPA, which is the treatment for par Parkinson's disease, the precursor uh, molecule to dopamine, their, their symptoms get much, worse. much worse. Right. So what has your own research uncovered about the neurological basis for it? A lot of the evidence of what goes wrong in schizophrenia points to a, a certain area of the brain as kind of be having a malfunction. And that part of the brain is called the prefrontal cortex. And it's an area of the cortex involved in higher cognition. The frontal cortical areas, um, you can see kind of deficits in them in postmortem schizophrenic brains. Right? Mm -hmm. You see kind of changes in the genes that get turned on and off there and changes in the architecture of the cells. Also, kind of behaviorally, like the cognitive deficits and the problems schizophrenics have, like paying attention and, you know, pursuing these cognitive tasks, we, we think that those are those are kind of higher brain functions associated with the, with the frontal cortex mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of evidence zeroing in on, on this part of the brain um, being uh, having a particularly important role in the disease. Specifically, this is where the symptoms of schizophrenia are manifested. Exactly. Frontal area. I think that's a really clear way to say it, yeah. I think about it. What about the relationship between this part of the brain, the frontal cortex, to dopamine production? Has there been proven a link between that? Yeah, so it's really interesting. So dopamine is produced in these centers in the brain that are kind of deep, deep down in the brain, right? Almost as far away in the brain as you can be from mm -hmm. the frontal cortical areas. And these centers produce gigantic cells that send their output structures called axons throughout various structures of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so they're kind of squirting dopamine in these different structures at, at different points in kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest areas, probably the biggest area to get dopamine is in the basal ganglia. And like Parkinson's, when you, when you lack dopamine in the basal ganglia, um, you, you, you get the disease. So the importance of the dopamine 2 receptor, and this is what I think one of the things that's really kind of plagued and slowed down schizophrenia research, is that the dopamine 2 receptor is expressed in 
the basal ganglia, uh, which are a set of structures deep within the brain that have kind of groups of cells. Those are the ganglia, and the basal is the lower part. Um, so they're at the bottom of the brain, and they're like highly interconnected. And we think they're important for evaluating and modifying what the cortex does in ways that you, like, you choose a behavior, you choose an action, you get a copy of that signal that makes you do what you want to do, mm-hmm. fed into the basal ganglia, and there it's evaluated with respect to what else is going on in mm. your life. You know, mm. if, you're, if, it's a, if it's a good action, it's rewarded and reinforced. If it's not, it's not reinforced. And so the basal ganglia are thought to kind of mold this, our ongoing behavior. Mm. So is this also the area where the, um, where the neuroleptic that you mentioned previously work on in treating schizophrenia. Exactly. And so that's really been the mystery, right, that I was trying to like set out, that you have a problem in the frontal cortex, but the drugs themselves bind in the basal ganglia. Mm. They bind deep down in the brain in specifically one type of cell, Mm -hmm. which expresses more dopamine 2 receptor than all the rest of the brain combined. Mm. And so it's been mysterious because it's assumed that this cell is one of the predominant targets of the drugs. But how you get from changing activity in this cell to the frontal cortex has been a mystery. So is this the question that you set out to answer when you designed your research? Definitely not. Okay. <laughs> no, absolutely not. This is all kind of learning post hoc about uh, how this part of the brain is organized. So I didn't really know anything about neuroscience before I started. And so as to help myself learn as much as possible, I started working on this part of the brain called the globus pallidus, which is a backwater structure. It's, it's, a, it's a ganglia, a group of cells that uh, really hasn't been worked on too much. And I thought, you know, just to help myself learn if you don't know too much about the structure you have to do a lot of the basic work on it what are the cells in the in in the structure in the globus pallus look like what neurotransmitters do they release what are their physiological properties Mm -hmm. and so i was i was working in this structure Uh, which this the structure of the brain what um behavioral functions does it control so we have an idea of what it does it's it's not really clear uh uh, if you lesion it, then the animals have a hard time moving. Hmm. But um, motor deficits are really the only things you can see, right? And the cortex, including sensory cortex and motor cortex and the cognitive cortices, all feed through these structures. And so we right. think they're kind of doing a stereotype thing to all those different types of inputs. So you were looking at this globus pallidus basically just to educate yourself about about neuroscience? Yeah, I mean, I've got to start somewhere. You okay. can either start part of the brain where there's, uh, you know, 100,000 articles, or you can start part of the brain where there's 45. <laughs> so what what did you uncover? So the, the globus pallidus turns out to be the structure that is connected, solely connected by the cells in the basal ganglia that express the dopamine 2 receptor, right? So all the dopamine 2 receptor expressing neurons send their axons into the globus pallidus. What I've discovered and demonstrated is that the globus pallidus has two groups of cells that send their axons directly into the frontal cortical areas of the brain. This seems to be it then. This is the circuit that connects the, the deep regions of the brain which produce dopamine to the frontal regions of the brain where schizophrenia is manifest? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done to, sh- to show that that's actually the case. And of course, too much dopamine is going to cause changes throughout the brain. Mm-hmm. But there was a problem with this dopamine hy- hypothesis because if you look at the... So the, the globus pallidus is just... 
it's a more complicated structure than people thought. And maybe that's kind of a generic thing to say about all the brain. But the original idea was that the globus pallidus only sent its output deeper into the basal ganglia. Mm -hmm. And so any therapeutic effect of the drugs that block at the dopamine 2 receptor would have to propagate through the whole structure to get back to the cortex. But actually, there's a direct connection. Exactly. And if you look at postmortem schizophrenic brains, you don't see a lot of these massive changes throughout the rest of the basal ganglia. Right? So it takes, you know, three or four synapses to get back from the output of the basal ganglia up into the frontal cortical area. And this is a, a direct connection. And not to belittle your research, but I'm just curious what uh, Please do. <laughs> no, <laughs> a little no, no. Away. <laughs> That's the wrong word. But what why did it take so long? You know, if people had been searching for this link, why did it take so long to find the specific answer? Is it just in terms of um, how research is done in this field? Is it sort of by trial and error where you look at different parts of the brain and see if that area will yield an answer? or And you just happen to get lucky? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because I don't want to oversell my own like contribution on, 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 on discovering this projection because this projection has been discovered before, in fact. Oh. But by, by projection, you mean? But, uh, this, this output of the globus pallidus to the frontal cortex. I see. Right? So it's been discovered before, but the people who worked this out in the late 70s and early 80s didn't have the sophisticated tools to kind of know that these cells were actually part of the globus pallidus. Hmm. So this part of the brain is complicated right. and it's messy. And in the kind of metaphor uh, or analogy to a house, which is like what I like to use sometimes. This part of the brain is like the dirty basement. It's <laughs> really complicated. Mm -hmm. Things aren't well ordered. There's a lot of jumbled stuff all over the place. What would the frontal cortex be in that analogy? That, that's the penthouse. The penthouse. That's, that's the penthouse. What about so the you take base? It over. Yeah. What about it's the... presentable. It's well ordered. You can show her that, right? Exactly. But, and and but the deeper areas are the primitive parts, right, which are much further no, from. Our... There's something to that, yeah. and th that also kind of come back to your, comes back to your question about why these weren't discovered before. I see. So there was a lot of detailed anatomy being worked out in the 70s and 80s in rats, cats, and monkeys. And projections like the one I found have been discovered and described. But it was really difficult to show what cells were actually connected to each other. And so this part of the brain has like nebulous boundaries that kind of go in and out. Um, and without the more sophisticated uh, transgenic mice, which we can talk about, um, these type of mice allow us to define those boundaries and establish connectivity in a really in a really fast way. Yeah, so why don't we go there? Why don't you tell us about the new tools that have allowed you to conduct this sort of research? Sure. So the, some of the new tools are uh, transgenic mice in combination with different viruses that allow us to visualize and activate or inhibit certain cell populations. For example, the cells that express the dopamine 2 receptor. We can make them glow green, and activate them selectively. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell us exactly what are transgenic mice? Sure. So transgenic mice are mice whose genomes have been engineered mm -hmm. to turn on genes that don't belong to the mouse endogenously. And the way these kind of tricks work is if you're interested in a certain part of the brain or a certain cell type, you can find a gene that's ex expressed exclusively in that tissue or in that type of cell. And you can use it as a little molecular hook mm. to gain access to looking at that tissue or um, functionally manipulating it. And so you, what you can do is take the gene and all the 
sequence that surrounds the gene that tells the brain or the whole body when and where the gene should be turned on. And you can replace the gene itself with a fluorescent protein or an enzyme that gets turned on only in this type of cell. Okay, so how actually were you altering the genetics of these mice? So we don't actually build a lot of the mice in our lab. The mice are kind of built from other labs that do more molecular biology. Our lab, um, Sabatini Lab at Harvard Medical School, does physiology of different types. And most of the experiments I do um, are called acute slice experiments, which means you dissect out the brain of a mouse. And is, there, is there a reason why mice are used in these sort of experiments? Yes, because they're very easy to engineer in this type of way for a historical reason that rats were not. Hmm. And do, do we know um, that the brain of mice are comparable enough to the human brain such that you know, whatever you discover in, in the brain of a mouse can then be applied or, or transferred to understanding of the human brain. Absolutely, and that's a really fantastic question, and I have the house metaphor to fall back on to help answer it. <laughs> so the, the layout and architecture of a mouse brain and a human brain are very similar to each other. Of, of course, the mouse is very scaled down, but if you think about the metaphor of a house, you know, a house has a door, a window, uh, or several windows, different floors and stairs to connect them. Mm -hmm. And those are all properties that make a house a house. Mm -hmm. And the, the mouse brain shares those kind of gross structural properties that make it very similar to uh, a human brain. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's a question of, well, where does the humanity arise, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, in, in terms of our first pass, we think about these different macro regions of the brains and the cell types within them are relatively conserved. Mm -hmm. And as part of this project, I should say we've opened up some really exciting collaborations um, with other graduate students here at Harvard to study these projections in primates and in humans. So far, the data suggests that the projections exist. Right. Does your discovery um, have any impacts on clinical treatment of schizophrenia, or is it in too early of a stage for it to be translated into treatment? It's, it's too early of a stage for sure, but um, we're really excited about that possibility. Does it have, does it, or does it seem to have, or will it seem to have implications for our understanding of schizophrenia? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, one way to study schizophrenia in a mouse is to compare the architecture and changes that happen in a human brain to what you can manipulate in a mouse and see if you can produce those same type of changes. Right. And so now we have these type of tools when we can ask, well, if this projection from the globus pallidus into the frontal cortex is important, we can do experiments to evaluate whether we can recapitulate some of the same effects that we see in a postmortem schizo schizophrenic brain. Mm -hmm. And for us, that's kind of the reductionist angle we want to take to being able to say, well, are these projections actually important or are they just part of a much larger network that's, that's disturbed? So it's too early, obviously, to say what the clinical implications will be, but, you know, best case scenario, what might they be? Well, best case scenario is that uh, uh, we find biomarkers that are somehow related to these cells' activity, which can help people um, diagnose before uh, schizophrenia manifests. Mm. And this can kind of go along with other studies of genetic association that are kind of tasked to do the same thing and potentially offer new drug t targets right? because these uh, antipsychotics are really generic dopamine blockers. Mm. And so just as I said, there's kind of a spectrum from Parkinsonism to schizophrenia. From, if you 
take these antipsychotics for too long, you get horrible mm -hmm. motor deficits, right? And so there's been multiple kind of generations of antipsychotics that have tried to improve these things, but the off-target effects and the motor symptoms have um, persevered more or less. And so we hope that if these cells are in fact important, we can dissect them out of a mouse. Mm -hmm. We can uh, evaluate all the specific genes that are turned on exclusively in these cells and find potentially new receptors that we can target with drugs that are unique to so these can, cells. We can be much more specific in our treatment. Exactly. Fantastic. Exactly. Okay, well, it's about time that we move on to the fluff segment of our show. And for our fluff this week, uh, we're discussing something a bit unusual. We're discussing a, a music video. It's, and it's the, the music video for the song Met Before by the band uh, Chairlift. And Shaoxun, I wonder, so you brought this music video to my attention. You seemed to have, you stumbled across it and you liked it. So why don't you begin by just telling us what it's like? Well, I discovered this music video when I was visiting the website of RB's lab. Um, it said, if you want to see a tour of the lab, click on this music video. And this is a interactive, user interactive video where as you listen to the music, um, you're given choices to move in you know, left or right in certain directions. And based on what your input is, the plot of the story of the music video will evolve. I don't know how many um, how many possibilities there are, but it was a great song and some very interesting footage of a very a very futuristic seeming lab. So we want. So yeah, tell us a bit about what's the basic what's the basic schema of the music video. So there's a branching tree of possibilities. Oh, but how, how, how does it begin? Where do we all start? It's these graduate students sitting in class, and I was actually wondering if some of those people were real graduate students who were just. Some of those suckers are real graduate students. <laughs> yeah, um, sitting in class, and um, it's basically a music video about the possibility of two people meeting and whether you choose to pursue that or leave it up to chance and what can happen. Wow. In that scenario. Deep. Very deep, yeah. Yeah, it's deep, and it kind of fits with the re kind of recursive structure of the video, right? So the so form and function are blended in this one. Yeah. Well, can you tell us how did it come to be filmed in your lab? One of my best friends and roommates, Ben Camp, is friends with the director, and the director was looking for some type of science vibe for this video that he had sketched out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I talked with him, and he came, and I said, oh, I'm potentially interested in showing you some of the aesthetics of what science looks like, flashing lasers, mm -hmm. brains, you know, over there, um, <laughs> electrical noise, you know, things like this uh, that he might want to use in his video. And so he came for an afternoon and hung out with me, um, and he was really a, a wonderful person to bring into the lab. This is Jordan Fish, the director. He was very attentive, asked really good questions, uh -huh. you know, puzzled over the experiments. Um, and uh, afterwards, he asked if we could shoot the video in the lab. And uh, Bernardo was very uh, generous and allowed us to do that. Were you there during the filming? Yeah, yeah, I was there during the film. So you got to meet the members of the band? Oh, definitely. Do you like them? <laughs> yeah, they're great. They were great, too. Everyone was uh, really fun to work with. I mean, it was it was kind of like summer camp for a long weekend as we produced this. Uh, so, Arby, you, you must be familiar then with all the different possible iterations of this video. You know, I've explored a lot of them, but it's a great song and all, but <laughs> after you hear it for 72 hours... Then... So, I, I tried... I played through it twice, and I got two very different storylines. The first time that I... The, well, so, the first time I did it, the two... So the two band members, um, who are both scientists, uncovered the neural basis of, of deja vu, and they yes, were yes. sort of announcing this to the TV mm -hmm. crews. And then the second time I did it, the the female band member, she ended up wandering around in the woods, was following some creepy guy with this big antenna. I, and I that, thought they were going to find treasure or something, but they end up just sort of crawling over the dead body of the, the other band. Right. That seems to be the two big 
branches, right? In all the times I've tried, it's either one or the other, and then there are more possibilities within those two tracks. Yeah, there's a lot of possibilities actually. So there's three. There's three tracks actually. Oh.、Um, hmm. There's kind of a lab world.、Mm-hmm. There's a apiary world. <laughs> there's a forest world. There's a psychedelic world. Whoa!、Uh, Whoa we didn't get to fall, the miles above、uh, <laughs> the surface of this planet, which、okay. is one of my favorites. <laughs> How long did the entire filming process take? Um, it took. Two full days, two insane days.、Wow. Was it di- disruptive for your research? Well, you know, I well, welcomed into it would have been. I mean, I kind of warned people and clear, you know, asked for a time. We did it like basically during、uh, the winter break when there weren't that many people around.、Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been extremely disruptive, and you know, but it, it, it's very difficult as a music video making crew to find some suckers that are going to let you in their lab that's、yeah. filled with. You know, precise equipment to kind of mess around with, and so I had to be there to supervise. Well, well, they were lucky to find you.、Mm. Great, great. Well, Arpi, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, thanks. It's my pleasure. And Chashun, thank you as always. The pleasure is all mine, Nick. <laughs> thanks also to our producer James Brandt and to our guardian protectors in the GSIS Office of Communications. Veritalk is made possible with help from the Harvard Media Production Center, and our theme music is by Domenico Vicinanza. We'd love to hear your comments or suggestions for future guests. You can reach us at veritalk at gmail dot com or find us at facebook dot com slash veritalk. From all of us at Veritalk, thanks for listening. <laughs>